in the book of Malachi thus far, we've seen that when God's creation, even His chosen people Israel, choose not to live with right, reflecting and reverent fear of the Lord, they will take the good gifts that God has given and they will edit them for their own purposes, leading to a host of consequences that they will experience, the nation will experience, and even that the land will experience. Israel, if you recall, was to be a people for God's own possession, a treasured possession, a people for His own glory. Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. They were to walk in the ways of Jacob, the chosen people of God, and yet they would not. They would live rather like the Edomites, like Esau, against the Lord, consistently forgetting who they actually were called to be. We've seen as well the priests, the priesthood that God had given Israel, this gift, this sweet gift to teach and instruct, to make offerings, to teach the law of the Lord to the people. The priests had likewise gone rogue. They had desired and taken the gift that God had given them and they had twisted it as a device and an office for their own possessions, their own desires. So they took the sacrifices that God would receive as good and they lowered them and made them an offense against God. This morning now we come to our text in Malachi noting that they have taken this good gift that is marriage from God to be a reflection and revering the Lord and they have recrafted it in their own image. Recrafting it in their image, what many of the men of Israel have done is they've divorced their wives and they have sought after likely younger women of pagan nations. They have not only intermarried, but they have begun to worship the gods of the nations. And so no longer are they reflecting and revering the way of the Lord, Yahweh, the true God, the one who's chosen them, but instead they are reflecting the pagan false gods of the nations. And it has led to a host of consequences and heartache that is absolutely rippling through the land. We've spoken before how Ezra and Nehemiah are contemporaries of Malachi. And in that, we won't read it, but two texts you might be, find beneficial to read later would be Ezra 9 and 10 and Nehemiah 10 through 13. These texts speak of this consistent habit that Israel has of pursuing the Lord and then quickly forgetting the Lord. And in forgetting the Lord, they chase after, through way of marriage, foreign women that they ought not to marry as the men neglect the women of Israel and instead pursue foreign women and therein they pursue foreign gods. And this cycle continues. Ezra 9 highlights this. Nehemiah 10 highlights this. This factor, this foolish cycle that just continues on and on and on. Even though God had been faithful and brought them back into the land, their hearts are wayward. Their hearts are hard. In our text this morning, then, we would ask the Lord to give us ears to hear. This has been one of my prayers for this passage from before we even started this series. Is it a text like this morning, a text you may be familiar with, one maybe you've heard quoted, a portion in which God says that He hates divorce. A text in which you may come and immediately with that understanding, you may build a barrier to not listen to the text. Or you might feel undue shame and guilt in which you say, this is not for me. My prayer for you and, and for all of us, for myself included, whether you're younger and have not married or simply never married in your life, that you would not look at a text like this and say, this does not apply to me. For the same trend exists for the single and for the married. 
for Israel and their decision to say, I can take the things that God has given and I can choose not to reflect and revere Him in them. So if you do that as a single person, you will do that as a married person. You will see the consequences become massive. That's what we see in the book of Malachi. When hearts are hardened, there is no institution or gift of God that is safe. It will stain and bleed over into all of them. So we pray that God would give us ears to hear soft hearts longing to pursue or proceed in marriage in light of God's faithfulness as a God-fearing people. Notice with me then, if you would, as we look to the book of Malachi, notice in verses 10 through 12 that God-fearing people ought to reflect and revere the faithfulness of God in marriage. Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 10, reflecting and revering the faithfulness of God in marriage. Just as we're to reflect and revere the faithfulness of God in our lives as, as single people, so too those that enter in a marriage, the marriage is to be an aspect of reflecting and revering God in all of our life, in every season that comes. Reflecting how so? Reflecting the distinct righteousness of God. Reflecting the distinct righteousness of God. Our marriages ought to reflect the distinct righteousness of God. Verses 10 and 11. Malachar writes, he says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves and has married instead the daughter of foreign gods. Israel has the same faithful father. They have the Heavenly Father. They have Yahweh. They have the Father Abraham and the faith. They have Moses, the one by which they've received the law. And yet their faithfulness to the Lord is lacking. Not only is it lacking, but it's actually reversed. The habit that we're going to see in the text, we've already seen it a little bit, is that you and I will reflect and revere the authority that is over our lives, truly over our lives. Not in name only, but the one that is over our lives, we will reflect most often. We will revere most often. When you get a friend group, a group of friends together, there is a primary influencer in that friend group, isn't there? The group begins to act like that person, like a school of fish following a, a leader of some sort. That's what Israel was to be, reflecting and revering Yahweh, the one who had loved them and for the choosing type of love. But instead, he says, you have done the opposite. They do not reflect and revere the Lord. Instead, they reflect the gods of the nations. It says, you have married the daughter of a foreign god. The opposite of holiness is the profane. It's taking the sacred and the good and making it common or for our own editing. That's what we do when we redefine the purposes of marriage. What we see what Israel does is they take the good gift that marriage is and they rewire it for their own pleasure, for their own editing, just like they took the priesthood. And the priests, the leaders of Israel, took it and made their own edits to say, this will please God good enough. They redefined it. They took the sacred office and gift for Israel and they remade it in their own desires. That's what 
they do likewise in the context of marriage. And that's what we must be aware, that we're called to reflect the Lord and to reflect His faithfulness in their marriage. Now, as we looked at last week, the leaders of Israel led the people into greater sin. So the people sinned, and then they, by offering defunct sacrifices, sinned again. But you can't hurt for helping. They ever, what they did wrong, and then the leaders escorted them to do more wrong. But Israel is being held by the hand of their leaders, and they're skipping all along the way. Israel was to know better. They were to know the law of the Lord. And yet, they didn't want to know better. Have you ever been there? I know better, but I don't want to know better. You ever had an experience like that? You knew what the Lord wanted, but you, you knew you were probably ignorant of what the Lord wanted for you. And you were okay with being there. That's the depiction of Israel. Israel is being led astray by her leaders, but she's okay with it. Their hearts are hardening. They don't reflect the faithfulness of God. Instead, they reflect the pagan false gods of the nations. Look over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. That's page 967 if you're following in the Pewback Bible. Page 967. Reflecting and revering. In this text, Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, gives us this do not be unequally yoked text. Now, it's got a larger application than simply to marriage, but it must also apply to marriage without question. And what we'll note in this text is both on the front side, the reflecting image that marriage is to have. Marriage is to reflect the faithfulness of God. Ephesians 5 makes this abundantly clear that, that God's design in marriage is to reflect Christ in the church, leading and laying down the life and submitting and caring for one and obedient to one. And this is the, the model that God gives us for the gift that is to be marriage. Before we begin reading this, I want to again highlight this point. Just like perhaps some in Israel were tempted to do away with the priesthood because they have seen the priest distort it, perhaps you've come from a background in which you've seen marriage or experienced marriage done poorly or sinfully. Don't be like Israel and say, therefore, marriage is bad or not a good gift. But allow that to heighten our desires to say, I want a marriage that reflects the faithfulness of my God and walks in reverence of Him. Reflecting and revering. Reflecting and revering. Just as the individual disciple is to live a life called to reflect the faithfulness of their king, revering him, so too the marriage ought to do what? Reflect and revere. Look at this. He says in verse 16 of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, I should say. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial or Satan or lawless ones? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? So notice in the first part, the reflecting component. He says to the believer, the follower of Jesus Christ, the one who turned and placed their faith and trust in Christ now, 
your life is to be reflective, and so it's to reflect righteousness, so what partnership should you have with lawlessness? It's to reflect the light, so what partnership should you have with darkness? It's to reflect Christ, so what, what partnership ought it to have with Blau? And he continues on, for we are the temple of the living God. As God says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and, and touch no unclean thing, that I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and, and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now listen to this. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. In the fear of God. Reflecting and revering. Marriage is to reflect the faithfulness of God and then to walk in reverence of God over our life, knowing that if we do not reflect Him, there will be consequences, natural consequences and intentional consequences that will come in our life. So reflecting and revering. Verse 12, we see that we're to be revering the inevitable judgment for walking against the way of the Lord. Revering the inevitable judgment for walking against the way of the Lord. The text reads, May the Lord, may Yahweh, cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings offering to the Lord of hosts. To cut off would be painful. To cut off would be painful. If you have had cancer, I can't imagine the, the fear of that, but to have something not good for you cut off from your body, though painful, is good for you. Because God loves us, He is the pruning good God. Throughout Scripture, we actually see several cases in which pruning takes place. We won't read it, but you can write down a Numbers 16. Numbers 16 is a great example in which God pruned Israel of a man named Korah. A man named Korah in which he set his sights against Moses and the Lord. And he tried to lead a rebellion that led with and led to the ground opening up and swallowing him whole. And many of his loved ones. And then 14,700 other people. The Lord cut them off and their descendants as an act of kindness to Israel, to Jacob. Reverence to the Lord. It's because the Lord is good, He is therefore a pruning God. In our lives then, we ought to long for pruning. We ought to long for pruning. And see, it is a grace of God in our lives. One of the acts of pruning that God gives us as a church body is that of accountability. Accountability. We often love the word, but we don't like the application. I like the idea of accountability, but I don't always like the practice of accountability. At our men's study this Thursday, that's what we're talking about, accountability. What does it look like? Accountability is a way in which the Lord exposes for us areas that need to be pruned. And if they're not pruned, like a vine that's sucking the life out of something good, it will likewise do that to our walk with the Lord, hardening our hearts. So because the Lord is good and faithful, He is a pruning God. Practical application if you're married is this. To have a conversation with your spouse. Is there an area of our life, is there an area in our marriage that we need to prune? 
that we need to ask God to prune us, that we would both pray, Spirit of God, would you show us, is there somewhere in our life that we need to be pruned? What a great prayer to pray. So as our lives reflect and revere God, so too, secondly, we note that God-fearing people ought to be broken over our sin rather than merely our consequences from our sin. God-fearing people ought to be broken over our sin rather than merely our consequences from our sin. Notice what Israel's doing here, verse 13 and 14, of, back in chapter 2 of Malachi. And this second thing you do, God says, you covered the Lord's altar with tears. Now, they shouldn't have had access to this, but so maybe it's a little symbolic of the whole people, or maybe they were doing it, I don't know. It says, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Israel's grief and groaning. They're weeping. These are adults. It is a it is an image that gets stuck into your mind when you see grown men and grown women weep. Weep and groan. If we were to have a picture or a video clip, we would look and say, wow, look how moved Israel is. Look at how repentant they are. They're weeping and they're moaning and there's tears all over the place. They were grieved for their consequences, but they were not moved in their sin. They were sad for the consequences, but they were not repentant of their sin. Repentance is a gift of God. It's a changing of the mind that leads to a changing of an action. It's a changing of allegiance. When we speak of repentance and faith, when John the Baptist, we're going to speak about John the Baptist next Sunday. John the Baptist comes preaching a message of repentance as he prepares the way for the Messiah, the messenger of the Lord, the messenger of the covenant. We see Jesus comes, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is near, Matthew 3. Peter, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 3, I believe, he comes and, and, and consistently through the book of Acts, he, he preaches, repent, repent. So there's initial saving repentance and faith by which we come to a point, all of us, if you've come to faith in Christ, you, you came to a point at some, at some time in which you came to see the significance of your sin. Yes, you saw perhaps the consequences of your sin. Yes, you lived the consequences of your sin. But you saw the significance of your sin that you have grieved a holy and just God. And by God's grace, you changed your allegiance, turning from sin and self and placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, to become the king of your life, to forgive you and to lead you. This initial repentance and faith and allegiance that you placed in Christ. Our lifestyle then as believers in Christ of young and old is to be lifestyles of repentance, bearing forth fruit, keeping with that of repentance. This not continual being saved in that sense, but a continual readjusting our past as we stray little by little back to the way of the Lord. That's the accountability we're talking about in our walking after the Lord. I'll give you six key points on repentance very quickly. It's from a book uh, by Thomas Watson, was a Puritan, called The Doctrine of Repentance. It's a catchy name. 
six key aspects of repentance. We might think of them in order. So spoiler alert, if you're planning to read this and you're putting it off for about 400 years, you might want to plug your ears at this point. The six aspects of repentance. I want to say this because repentance is a word we use quite often, and I think his list that he gives us is very, very helpful. I'm going to give them to you quickly, and then we'll come back and spend about a sentence or two on each one. He speaks of repentance. He says, Repentance is a, a grace of God's Spirit, whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. This is made new, changing. Repentance is a spiritual medicine made up of six special ingredients. Here they are. Number one is the sight of sin. The sight of sin. Number two, sorrow for sin. Sorrow for sin. Sight and then sorrow. Number three, confession of sin. Sight, sorrow, confession. Number four, shame. Sight, sorrow, confession, and shame. Number five, hatred. A hatred for sin. Sight, sorrow, confession, shame, hatred, and then finally, number six, a turning from sin. A turning from sin. So let's speak those. Just give a, 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 a second or two on each one. A sight of sin. A sight of sin is the admitting our depraved standing before God. It's seeing sin for what it is. The mask comes off. Proverbs is all about the wayward woman, this, this uh, uh, seductive person. And yet in reality, as, as temptation acts this way, you see it for what it is. and You go down into the depths. What appears to be alluring is actually the depths. There's this sight of sin. Israel, even though Israel is weeping and they have tears, they don't even have the first component of repentance. They have no sight of sin. That's why the prophets came to expose to them the reality of their grievous sin against the holy and just and good God, their Father. So sight of sin leads to sorrow for sin. One theologian called sorrow the embittering of the soul. So we do well to note, and he spends several pages speaking about the the different ways in which people express sorrow, all a little differently. It's good to keep in mind. So a sight of sin, a sorrow for sin, as we see what the, the, the gravity of sin, which leads, number three, to confession of sin. And he calls this, Watson describes this confession as the venting of sorrow. And he gives an example, just like the tear, when you're moved emotionally, must make its way out the duct, so too, repentance, as we're grieved by sorrow of sin, must make its way out the mouth through confession. For shame for sin, he calls this the soul's blushing from sin. The soul blushes. We don't stay in shame, but the shame moves to a hatred for sin. It's when sin moves in our life from friend to foe. From friend to foe, and this leads into a lifestyle of turning from sin, of waging war against sin, of consistently plucking our eyes out against sin, waging war against sin. Israel is to be a worshiping and witnessing people, but they don't even see the first component of it. That's why Malachi came. Practical application before we move to this third primary idea of being a God-fearing man or woman in the context of marriage is this, that you and I would never, never stop asking the Lord to show us our sin. that you and I would continually ask the Spirit of God to show us a clear sight of our sin. Israel had everything. They had just been brought back into the land from captivity. 
And already they had no sight of their sin. In our life, how consistently we ought to pray, Spirit of God, would you show me any sin in my life that I'm not aware of? And in that way, let that be moved to reformation, to turning and worshiping the Lord, not grieving and wallowing in our sin, but looking to the Lord who has paid the debt of our sin. Let that lead to a life of worship. So number one, God-fearing marriages are to reflect and revere the faithfulness of God. Number two, God-fearing people are to be broken over our sin rather than merely our consequences from our sin. And third, God-fearing people ought to ask the right questions before and while marriage. God-fearing people ought to ask the right questions before and while married. Before marriage. Let's look at verse 15. The Scripture reads, Did He not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Here's the first question I think we ought to ask consistently before marriage if you're not married and you should desire to be married. Marriage and procreation are meant to glorify God above and in all things. Marriage and procreation are meant to glorify God above and in all things. So here's the question. Is that my desire? That's time of reflection. And number two, is it the desire of the one with whom I am considering marriage? Genesis 1 and 2, God could have done anything He desired, but He created Adam and Eve. And He chose to for them to procreate and to go and the Spirit of God being involved in this union. Before the fall ever takes place, God gave this beautiful gift of marriage. This beautiful gift of marriage for His glory reflecting and dependent upon the Lord. What a sweet gift He's given. And so this purpose that we have in our lives, this statement of godly offspring, I think it functioned in at least two ways for Israel. Number one, it showed them that they were to live in a way they were to be godly offspring. And they weren't living that way. So the fact that they were to be godly offspring, that God was going to fulfill this promise to bring the Messiah through their line, fulfilling this promise through this line of Eve, this Genesis 3.15 promise to crush the head of the serpent, they were to be themselves godly offspring, and they were not doing that. Number two, they were to be aiming to train up godly offspring, and they certainly weren't doing that because they had no problem divorcing the wives of their youth and pursuing pagan women and worshiping the pagan gods. It gets them on every component. So knowing our calling in life is to glorify God, to be a confessing and proclaiming people of His goodness and His grace. We look to Christ. So a question that I ask is, is this my desire for marriage, or is it not? Is this the person to whom I'm considering uniting my life to? Is this their desire in marriage? To glorify God, to revere and reflect Him, in our marriage, and should the Lord bless us with children to see those children grow up to be disciples who make disciples? Is that our prayer for them? As parents, we have a host of prayers, don't we? And if you're married and you desire children, there's a host of prayers for those children you don't even yet hold. We long for them to be healthy. We long for them to be successful. We long for them to be happy. If the prayer of the believer as godly offspring. That's to be our ultimate purpose. God, would you make this child yours? 
Would you give them a fear of you in all things? Would you make them disciple makers? Said in a point of practical application, last week we had our time of parent commitment by which they committed before you, their church family, to try to train their children up in these ten commitments before the Lord. So if you're not yet married and you're considering marriage, could you honestly, with the person you're considering marriage, make those ten commitments with a clear conscience? Or would you be privately dragging your feet? And if the answer is no, you're going to walk into some massive consequences that you're asking for. But what a sweet gift it is by God's grace as He massages our hearts to desire those things. So before marriage, and secondly, while married. While married. Verse 15 through 16. Picking up halfway through 15. He says, so guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You'll note the ESV footnote there, the bottom of your Bibles if you're in a pew back probably. On verse 16, it's, it's stated more commonly in the New American, the King James, that the Lord, it says the Lord, other legitimate translation, the Lord, the God of Israel, says that he hates divorce. Two questions of application. Two questions that we ought to be asking, I should say, from this text. Number one, if you're married, how on guard am I so as not to exchange the truth for a lie? If I am married, how on guard am I so as not to exchange the truth of God's design and purpose for a lie. To be on guard in the context of a marriage is a theme that we've seen all through Scripture, not just for the married, but for the single, to be on guard. We saw this warning that the priests thought of themselves more highly than they ought, so they took the authority into their own hands to edit the things of God. We looked at Romans 12 that we're called to, to, in the New Testament. Paul tells the believers to think of themselves with sober judgment, in 1 Corinthians 10.12, Paul says, So the one who thinks he is standing firm, take heed lest he fall. So if you're married, you know one of the greatest dangers of milestones? You know what one of the greatest dangers is? It's the assumption that you've got it figured out. College graduates, you'll find that when you graduate. You get a piece of paper, but that sure doesn't mean you've got it figured out. When you get married... You get a marriage certificate, but guess what? It doesn't mean you got it figured out. You celebrate 50 years of marriage. Guess what? You probably got it figured out. No, you don't. <laughs> Even then, you don't have it figured out. And one of the great dissolutions that happens in our lives is we walk through life and we constantly are looking and saying, I thought I would be better at this by now, don't we? That's the context that we see in marriage to be on guard. And one of the dangers that we can have in our lives, the context of marriage, is say, you know what, I've got this part of my life figured out, Lord. I don't need you in this. And that's absolute foolishness. Marriage is no special exception to our life. It's no special exceptions to the gifts that God gives us. It's to be treated as sacred, just as our faith and our walking after the Lord is to be treated as sacred. The, first, the second Corinthians text, uh, our bodies as a, as a temple, to be treated sacredly. 
So what happens when we begin to treat ourselves like, well, we got this area of our life? It's the same thing as if you were to say, I'm having a retirement party for my faith. I'm 65, I'm going to retire. I'm retiring from my faith. I did a great job. So too is the person that's married. So that same foolishness is the person that's married that says, you know what? I've got it figured out now. We've been married this long. We don't need to be actively dependent upon the Lord. And here's how it changes. Here's the only area in which it changes. We talk about word, worship, service, family for the maturing disciple to ever grow up in by God's grace from acorns to mighty oak trees in the faith, providing beautiful shade for others to be under and to grow up in eventually. The difference is you add the word together to every one of those. If you're married, you're to be devoted to the word of God. Listen, together. If you're married, you're to be committing yourselves to, to gospel center worship, corporate worship, together. If you're serving, you're to be serving the Lord sacrificially with all that you are and all that you have now, together. You're to, to be a, a family of God. Being renewed by the power of Christ's love as a family. Practicing the one another's together. If we begin to coast in this area, we will make the massive mistake that Israel makes. They will cease to be on guard. And they will become vulnerable. They will exchange the true purposes of their marriage for the myths of the pagan gods and the pursuit of their own pleasure. So, number two. One, be on guard. Number two, does this please or grieve my Lord? Does this please or grieve my Lord? Israel is not asking if their actions please or grieve the Lord. At no point in this does that take place. They're not asking, is this what the Lord who chose us desires for us? That doesn't seem to enter into their mind at all. They're living by their own pleasures, and therein they're abandoning their wives, they're divorcing them, they're pursuing pagan women, they're pursuing their gods, and God says, he hates it. Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. God says, this is not what I've chosen for you, Israel. I hate this. You're acting like Esau, even in marriage. This is the danger. The danger to act impulsively in our lives. We have no ability or right to redefine the things that God has given us. So does this please or grieve my Lord? Just like the priests have no right to redefine the things of God, a culture has no right to redefine what marriage is. Dr. Muller calls this a mirage, not a marriage. We can't define the gender, the number, or the ultimate purpose of marriage for our own pleasure. And to do so is not to honor God, it's to profane the gifts of God. This is a heavy truth that cuts everywhere. We have no right to edit the things of God. We're called to be on guard and ask ourselves, does this please or grieve my Lord? What a question that I should ask on a regular basis. Does this please or grieve my Lord and how I treat my wife, how I treat my spouse? Does this please or grieve my Lord? It doesn't enter into Israel's vocabulary. All that enters into Israel's vocabulary in this book is this is tiresome. That's the question we're to ask. God, does this right now, in this moment of my life, does this please you? I need to be reminded of that every day. 
If you don't believe me, you can ask my wife. Does this please you, Lord? What a question for each of us to ask. Two areas of application. I understand that some of you, many of you perhaps, have come from an experience in which you have been divorced. Or you grew up the child of one in a home in which divorce has taken place and you've experienced the painful consequence of these things. And I would say you to understand that in Jesus Christ, His broken body and spilled blood, if you have repented and placed your faith and trust in Christ, you are forgiven. Not that being a child of divorce is a sin, but, but the Lord is good and faithful and you are beautiful and holy in Jesus Christ. You have no unforgivable sin. You are righteous before God by faith in Jesus, the righteous one. So when you experience shame, when you experience, you look quickly to Jesus Christ, your Lord, and you ask yourself the same question, God, how do I please you now that I'm in this season? But please, don't let that handicap you from a life of faithfulness to your king. The accuser would love that. But ask yourself the question, God, how can I walk faithfully in this season? If you're single this morning and you've longed for marriage, the same questions ought to be asked and applied to you. Four points of quick application to you if you're single. Number one, do not let bitterness spoil your joy in Christ. Do not let bitterness spoil your joy in Christ. Ask the Lord that your next step would be pleasing to Him, whatever that would be and in His timing. But do not allow singleness to poison your joy in Christ. Number two, very connected. Do not lower your standards in marriage. Do not allow a longing to lead you to do what the priest did to the sacrifices. And to lower the standards of who the Lord would have you to be yoked to. That is one pursuing the Lord greatly. Number three, run for the Lord faithfully first in this season. And this season may last your entire life. Run for the Lord faithfully with the freedoms that you have in Christ. Connected to number four, lean in to your church family. Lean in to your faith family. Become a fellowship maker in the local church. Practice massive intentional hospitality. And lean in to your faith family. For in Christ, we are whole. In Christ, we are family. In Christ, we are forgiven. One Lord, one faith, one hope, one baptism, one Lord, Jesus Christ. He's worthy of our lives in singleness and in marriage. Next steps. Number one, a number of questions for you to consider after the service is over. But number one is if you have been faithless or experienced faithlessness in marriage, how should knowing that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God, how does that truth comfort you? and challenge you today that in Christ you're righteous. Even in feelings, perhaps, that are lacking that. Number two, each of us can share examples of having been broken for the wrong reasons, can't we? So, 
Take time this week to reflect when you're broken for the right reasons, that being broken for the right reasons is itself a gift of God in your life. Number three, how has the Spirit used this passage to turn me toward Christ and a greater reliance upon His faithfulness? How has the Lord used this text to turn me towards Christ and a greater reliance on His faithfulness? What a sweet Sunday to partake of the Lord's Supper together as a church family. Observing and recalling the great King that we have. As the servers come forward, we remember Jesus Christ. We proclaim His death until we come. We are a local church body made up of single people, of married people, of older people, of younger people. And we all have this in common. We are relying upon the Lord Jesus Christ. His broken body, His blood that was spilled for us. Taking us from enemies of God, giving us a seat at His table in Christ, and adopting us by faith in Jesus. What a privilege we have to be partakers of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the great gifts that He gives the local body to observe is that of the Lord's Supper. We do so of those who have already turned from sin and placed our faith and trust in Christ and confessed our faith to Him. So if you've not yet done that, this is not for you, but it is something that is offered to you if you will but turn and trust in Christ. None of us come with a resume to come to this table. We come as recipients who have received by God's grace faith in the Lord Jesus. We are proclaimers of His goodness in our lives. This morning in a sermon like this, if you have experienced shame or guilt, you look to the Lord Jesus Christ. In Him, we have forgiveness of sins. In Him, we have life. What a privilege it is to know the Lord Jesus. What a privilege. Look around for a moment to see others who in just a moment will take this two cups together and together as a church body will partake of the bread and will remember the Lord's broken body for us, for my sin and for your sin and our sin, and become as one family as adopted kids by faith in Christ. And we'll partake of the blood. Israel lowers the standards, but the Lord would not lower His standard. The perfect, sinless Lamb of God would come for us. He's our King. He's the one we proclaim until a day in which we will eat with Him and drink with Him in body, in His presence, proclaiming His glory for all eternity. That's the gift of the Lord's Supper. I'm excited to eat with you. Let's pray. Lord, You're worthy of our life. You're worthy of our song, and You're worthy of this intentional time throughout our week, the day, this first day of the week, to put our schedules aside and to budget in this time to gather together with those who have likewise forgiven and desired to be proclaimers of your glory and your goodness. We come to this table as those who are on our own dead in sin, but in Jesus Christ, his broken body, his spilt blood, his given life over for us, we come as those who have been made whole, forgiven in Jesus Christ. We proclaim your death unashamedly until you should come again. It's in Jesus' name all God's people said together. Amen.